This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. The opening keynote address was delivered by Jean-Francois Durieux, former director at UNHCR Geneva. Mr. Durieux was introduced by Renata Caldor, AO, founder of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Thank you very much, Jane, and good morning, everybody. Um, it's absolutely my delight to introduce our keynote speaker, Jean-Francois Durieux. Um, Jean-Francois is a graduate of the Faculty University Saint Louis in Brussels, Belgium, and an, obtained a law degree from the Catholic University of Laval. In 2011, he completed a 30-year career with the UNHCR, during which he served in Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America, and at the UNHCR headquarters in Geneva, notably in the Division of International Protection and the Regional Bureau of Europe. His last position in the organization was that of Director of the Division of Program Support and Management. He has written extensively on refugee law and refugee protection, and has organized seminars and courses on refugee law, um, refugee law, statelessness, and related fields, most recently as the Director of International Refugee Law and Migration Law Program of the International Institute of Humanitarian Law in San Remo. He is a research associate of the Refugee Study Center at the University of Oxford, where he taught international law. He currently contributes to the MA in Refugee Protection and Forced Migration Studies at the Refugee Law Initiative, University of London, where he is a senior research associate. And I would also like to thank our, key no our keynote sponsor, Bragamont, an award-winning immigration law firm that provides comprehensive corporate and private immigration services in 170 countries. We are very grateful for their support of this conference and enabling us to have Mr. Durieux here today. Please welcome Mr. Durieux. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. And I should add, since this is my first visit to Sydney and indeed my first visit to Australia, as a distant user of the resources of the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, I wish to thank you and congratulate you, as well as Mr. Andrew Caldor, for your endowment of the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law. Jane has been lucky to find you, and I suppose you've been lucky to find Jane. <clears throat> and as I say this, I realize that probably luck has nothing to do with all this. Great minds are bound to meet, and brave hearts too. And in our world, in our field, great minds and brave hearts are very much needed. For, let's face it, these are tough times. 
for international refugee law. Two months ago, Jane, you just alluded to it, <clears throat> in New York, a declaration was adopted that reaffirms the relevance, the centrality of international law in refugee protection, and particularly of the 1951 Refugee Convention. Great. But we've heard this before. And I have to say that there comes a time at which these reaffirmations of international law that really don't very, go very deep into what international law can or cannot offer, they start worrying me. I find them increasingly hollow and almost ritualistic. As a matter of fact, um, the language of reaffirmation was stronger 15 years ago at the close of the global consultations process that marked the 50th anniversary of the same 1951 convention. <clears throat> there, the motto was, I remember, a full and inclusive application of the Refugee Convention. Nowadays, to the extent there is a consensus, I'm afraid that it probably gels around a rather minimalistic application of the Convention. And frankly, how could it be otherwise? If we consider that those leaders who put their signature, a rather non-committal signature, at the bottom of the New York Declaration, include those nationalists, those isolationists, those protectionists who seem to rule the world today. In their logic, international refugee law probably does not exist. To the extent there is law, it's not really international. And to the extent it's international, it's probably not law. For them, the refugee problem is an immigration issue. And immigration is a domain ruled by national sovereignty, with which international law has no reason and probably no right to interfere. Now, we know this is not true. <clears throat> Granted, immigration is one way and possibly the best way of solving the refugee problem. But that is about the how. This is not about the what, much less about the why of the international refugee regime. What this regime truly embodies is a rather unique form of collective responsibility to rescue people in distress. And international refugee law is the spine of the regime. Its purpose is to help states manage this collective responsibility. This management has a very strong and obvious territorial dimension. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is a craving for answers to questions such as, where should a refugee stop in her search for asylum? Where is refugee protection to be given? Where will the solution be found? Where will it come to an end? The territorial dimension is obviously critical. And I suggest it requires more or clearer rules than are currently available. However, the theme of this conference, the role of time 
in international protection is illuminating. It invites us to a form of utopia in the literal sense. By de-emphasizing the dimension of place, the where, and to focus on the dimension of time. I'm happy to be part of this reflection and I look forward to my learned colleagues' perspectives on this issue. Time indeed provides us with a fresh angle of attack against the many misperceptions that undermine refugee law nowadays. And I believe this change of tack is not only refreshing intellectually, I think it's also tactically sound at this particular juncture, since the refugee regime and the law are under fire on grounds that stress territorial belonging, that stress national identity, border control, and other geographic markers. So how does international law manage refuge time is, I suppose, the question that will retain our attention today. In this short address, because time management is also my problem, I suppose, um, uh, please don't hesitate to... Anyway, in this short address, I intend to focus on two time-related aspects of international refugee law. And I will argue that these aspects are present within the 1951 Convention, albeit that they're not necessarily or easily recognized therein. My first topic will be the trigger of the legal regime. And the rule I intend to defend is one of early identification of a need for protection. Of course, it is trite knowledge that we're talking about a regime which is based on qualification, right? The convention contains a refugee definition which represents the consensus of a very large section of the world today. That is, in itself, no small achievement though interpretations may vary, but that's a fact of life in law, I suppose. Uh, but we do have a common understanding of who needs to be protected. And there's also this principle, which doctrine has established, that the act of recognizing refugee status is declaratory. It does not constitute a status, but it recognizes the existence of the criteria in the person who is being interviewed and whose case is being decided. Now, these are pretty standard rules of refugee law. They are clearly and squarely within the convention, but they have important implications for how the regime works or should work. For example, when a state recognizes a protection need under international law, it does so not only for itself, but on behalf of all states partaking in the legal norm. By the same token, the act, this act of recognition is the act that triggers an operating system of international cooperation and solidarity. 
which I believe is also embodied by the Convention, and a system that is aimed at effective protection and durable solutions. And it seems reasonable to require that this indispensable first step, the recognition of the refugee quality of an individual seeking asylum, be taken at the first available opportunity. That is, as soon as a claim is made, regardless of location. So what I'm suggesting here is actually to replace the question protection where, which is so often heard, and which has led to such weird concepts and mechanisms as the safe third country, uh, which also underpins interstate arrangements for allocation of responsibility, such as the Dublin, Dublin regime in, in European law. This question of protection where should be put aside for a minute and replaced by protection when. Why is this important? Because, let's face it, there is, there isn't, and there cannot be, in my view, a principled answer to the question, where should a refugee stop in her search for asylum? Protection where remains as elusive a question as ever. In the individual refugee story, this indeterminacy translates into a state of limbo. She is in orbit, indeed. We used to have an XCOM conclusion on refugees in orbit, and not some 40 years ago, but the phenomenon is there still. Yeah, she's in orbit. She's neither here nor there. She's also caught in a sort of time warp. Whereas the declaratory nature of refugee status determination is meant to eliminate any time gap in protection, in actual fact, the irregular mover does not get a chance to voice her claim while states are arguing over their responsibilities. The operation of the regime is effectively on hold. Now, some governments in the global north, which I understand extends pretty far south these days, <laughs> believe that they know how to fix this enduring problem. And they would like to affirm a principle of proximity. So again, emphasizing place instead of time. According to this principle, first, refugees should seek and find protection as close as possible to their countries of origin. In other words, in the region. And second, states in the region should accept primary responsibility for providing asylum to refugees from neighboring countries, while states further afield are committed to strengthening the protection capacities of their frontline counterparts. This has become some sort of a mantra, but I contend that it has no basis in law. And it's actually hard to relate such principle to any recognizable premise of uh, international refugee law. Where the first state of asylum lies is, in fact, immaterial. What matters is that in every refugee story, there is one state in which 
his or her claim is made for the first time. And that state has a very special responsibility, not only towards the refugees, but also towards the international community as a whole and this commonwealth which is represented by the 1951 convention. In the light of this, we can say, and we should say, at least I venture to say, <laughs> that any measure, any policy that delays recognition of refugee status, including through farming that responsibility out to another state, is wrong. Any measure or policy that maintains ambiguity or uncertainty over the refugee quality of an asylum seeker is wrong. It runs against the basic tenets of the regime. This takes me to the second scenario that I would like to briefly discuss. And here, the context is no longer this irregular or secondary movements that definitely are a reality of the refugee phenomenon today and one that law uh, has difficulty capturing but to an equally common scenario of mass influxes of refugees. Now, recognizing the refugee quality of a mass influx as compared to recognizing the refugee quality of an irregular mover obviously is a different matter, both in terms of scale but also probably in terms of the whole approach to it. It looks simple. In fact, one thing that strikes me in the uh, refugee annex to the New York Declaration is that it talks indeed about how states should cooperate better in order to face large movements of refugees. I think that large-scale movement is actually in the title. It doesn't define large-scale, that's okay, but also it doesn't define refugees. So it gives the impression that whenever there is a refugee crisis, all states agree that this is actually a refugee crisis. I wish the world were so simple. So it looks simple. It is actually quite complicated. I suppose what triggers the regime in a case of a mass influx is essentially, here I'm talking empirically rather than legally, a call for help. It is actually one or several states that feel flooded, overwhelmed by an influx. By calling it a refugee influx, they know that they can rely on some measure of solidarity that would probably not be available if they would call it something else. I think the trigger in mass influx is really that. It is a call for help from those states that are affected, impacted by this large-scale movement. In such situation, what, we, what is created to be addressed is not an individual refugee story, it is a refugee situation. And a refugee emergency is born. And the word emergency is, of course, imbued with time-related concepts. So this is what I would like to explore briefly with you. It's often said that the 51 Convention is not fit for emergencies. 
that it was not exactly written at the time of large-scale influxes is probably true, but I, I would not jump to the conclusion that it is not fit for emergency. However, I'm not going to discuss that. I think that more importantly, the 51 Convention, as it was written, though the language is at times extremely convoluted and difficult to understand, it actually gives us some directions. It gives states directions on how to manage refuge time, even in times of crisis and emergencies, through and beyond the emergency. And the key concept here, you will not find it in the convention, but it's possible to read into it, is transition. Transition from emergency to something else. And the legal standard that I believe is inherent in it is early and steady access to solutions. So we had a principle of early identification in order to trigger the regime in refugee emergencies. We need a principle of early and steady access on solutions in order to preserve the dynamism of the regime and of the law. Hmm? That so many refugee situations become protracted and start rotting. It is, I suppose, a worrying sign that an early focus on solutions is easier said than done. And indeed, I think the refugee regime, as we know it, has a serious problem still with timing and sequencing, generally. As we know, the term protracted refugee situation itself carries an important qualitative connotation. It's not just about the duration of life in exile, it's also about the quality of life in exile, which is seen to deteriorate over time as solutions remain elusive. And the image of the warehoused refugees is symptomatic of a regime at a loss. It is as though they were no standards to be followed between the emergency phase and durable solutions. Well, there are standards. And these standards are there, implicitly at least, in the 1951 Convention. The logic of the Convention, as most of you know, is not just to protect refugees from refoulement. It is actually to lead refugees back to a decent and responsible and autonomous life, and to do that through a gradual acquisition of rights, which is actually completely consistent with the standard of progressive realization of social and economic rights in the International Covenant. This is what Jim Hathaway called time as attachment. Right? That as time passes, the quality of life should improve, whereas in practice, we see that it, is, that it deteriorates. So there are standards. Now, of course, this concept of time as attachment, of ties and time creating a greater right has been criticized on many grounds, which I have no time to 
review, but you will remember this discussion about the exilic bias of the convention regime. Where is the responsibility of the state of origin in all this? Good question. There's also a serious accusation, especially from states in the South, that are saddled with huge refugee caseload of an integration bias, a local integration bias. And I'll come uh, briefly back to that one uh, later on. So we have to take these criticism and these objections seriously, but I don't think it changed much to the fact that the convention is sending a fairly clear message about the gradual acquisition of right. What it tells us is that refugee protection is dynamic. It should not be allowed to settle huh, or to retrograde. And I think that is in itself a very important standard to be followed. It's also, I would suggest, a realistic proposition because as a matter of fact, no human situation is ever static. There is no such thing as a warehouse refugee. There is no such thing as an idle refugee camp. These are fictions. It is actually the system that is unable to capture and to support the inner dynamics of refugee populations. The conceptualization of refugee situations in terms of successive phases is in itself problematic. The emergency phase, the transition phase, the solutions phase, the early recovery phase, the humanitarian world oops, sorry, uh, is full of these uh, concepts and so it seems to like this step-by-step -step approach. But again, that is a poor reflection of the inner dynamics uh, uh, and the complex dynamics of, the, of refugee situations. Hmm? Um, this presentation of the refugee, of refugee situation in phases entails rigidity where flexibility is actually uh, what we need. Time is represented as a series of isolated moments and the norms and the institutional mandates of the regime the types of intervention are supposed to phase in and then phase out, almost mechanically. In contrast, a dynamic conceptualization of refugee time will rely on the concept of transition, but not as a phase, as something that goes through the entire regime. And the ability of the regime to meet its dual objectives, protection for as long as needed, and solutions as early as possible will depend on the way that those ingredients of the regime dovetail. Now, we have indeed some inspiration in the 51 Convention on the way to solving this conundrum of the early access and steady access to solutions. The Convention, and Jane already said this, does not contain all the solutions. And a serious rethinking uh, is needed there around the 1951 convention, not to question the convention, but to see how it can be bolstered and supported by other approaches, including possibly other legal norms. For example, I already mentioned this local integration bias. 
it's clear that you can actually read that out of the 1951 convention. So solution-oriented obligations cannot be imposed only upon existing countries of asylum. The world should be the place of asylum. Um, because we know that, of course, the reason why so many situations, refugee situations, fall into protractedness and, and, and sort of uh, never-ending emergencies and, and enforced misery is actually a question of collective action failure. Uh, the frontline states perceive the system as terribly unjust, as terribly unfair, because it imposes upon them a firm legal obligation not to send the refugees back, whereas other states don't seem to have any legal obligation to share the responsibilities. So clearly that needs to be addressed. Um, and we have to be aware that the, this resistance of frontline state to local integration reflects a deep mistrust in an international system of responsibility sharing that all too often fails to deliver fairness, either to the refugees or to the state's concern. The perception that local integration is a duty for asylum states, whereas burden sharing or repatriation and reintegration, for that matter, are left to the discretion of either resettlement state or the state of origin and nationality, I believe that this perception cannot be overcome within the strict parameters of the traditional trilogy uh, of durable solution. I think some rethinking also is needed uh, on what integration means, uh, why, what local means in the sense of local integration, because there it's, that, that concept is full of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, unproven assumptions. For example, that there is almost by necessity an affinity between frontline states and the refugees coming from neighboring countries. I think that's an assumption that needs to be proven in every case, and there are many situations in which we know this not to be true. The whole concept of resettlement also needs to be rethought, I think, in those terms. I think that we need to introduce such concepts as evacuation, which in fact, in most cases, represents reality much more than resettlement. Resettlement projects this image of refugees who are settled, who are fully protected, and then they migrate to another state for the ultimate durable solution possibly, right? That's not the reality of resettlement, even as it is practiced, but it's also not how resettlement should be practiced. Resettlement is indeed a way of sharing responsibility even during an emergency. But then don't call it resettlement. This actually is an evacuation. It is actually sharing the responsibility to protect and not intervening at one's discretion when the time has come for solution. So all this reconceptualization is clearly needed, and in fact, it will take us not only beyond the 1951 convention, but probably beyond the refugee regime as such. 
to be true to the objective of resolving the refugee problem, which after all is in the ambition of the regime, one has to acknowledge that the refugee regime itself, law, mechanism, institution, does not contain either the normative or the cooperative instruments that will deliver permanent solutions. The ultimate transition, therefore, may well be a transition from one regime to another. To take inspiration here, why not, of immigration regimes, to take our cues from the development world, etc. At that time, so that indeed uh, the refugee regime will work itself out of existence as it should. But of course, that is only desirable if other regimes, other norms, other institutions um, take over and deliver solutions. I think it's probably useful to accept the fact that refugee problems are never solved. They just mutate. They become other types of problems. But there are probably mechanisms, norms, institutions out there that have been made in order to address those problems. So it's also about not necessarily a shift of regimes, but the dialogue between regimes that we need here. Okay. Hmm. Good. How to conclude, Madam Chair? Hmm. Modestly, I suppose. That's the good thing of speaking first. Uh, I've presented this utopian perspective uh, on international refugee law that de-emphasizes place and privileges time as a concept that should lead us and should lead our thinking. I still believe, subject to your comments, of course, that it can be illuminating. At the same time, it's no panacea. The ugly territorial dimension will resurface and will need to be addressed. However, I think that this approach, the focus on time, helps make the case, at least, that there is more to the convention than meets the eye. Some of that supplement may be more in the spirit of the instrument than its letter, but some of it is squarely in its letter and should be recognized as such. Now, what to do with it? Well, I would obviously contradict myself if I were satisfied by a mere affirmation of the principles of refuge time management, which I try to discuss with you. I'm quite aware that a creative outlook on the problem and the norms is not a powerful enough weapon against the restrictive trend that dominates refugee policies today or against the reductive trend that undermines refugee law and empties it of its protective substance. These are tough times for international refugee law, no doubt. Law itself is under attack. 
And we as lawyers, we have a special responsibility to fight back with law. What we need to do now is to turn these principles into solid legal arguments. What form will these arguments take? I don't know. I believe that they need to be sharp. They must aim at making international refugee law harder, not softer. I must confess I'm also a bit tired about soft law that never solidifies. Um, in what forums will those arguments be voiced, then defeated, then voiced again until they win? If I go back, if I follow, continue on our second topic, which is this complex issue of responsibility sharing and the management of emergencies and the transition to solutions, I suppose that we probably need more law. Um, we'll have opportunities today and even tonight to discuss and to revisit concepts such as comprehensive refugee response plans, comprehensive plans of action, perhaps even a protocol on responsibility sharing. Um, Okay, so I won't uh, uh, go into the detail. These are very complex issues, but I think it's important that we think of this uh, in terms of what legal tools we can possibly develop to complement our arsenal. One thing which, to me, is clear is that monitoring and supervision of international refugee law as it exists needs to be strengthened. My view, there was one protocol to be uh, uh, drafted to the 1951 Convention. It would be about UNHCR's role and beyond UNHCR's role, a system of peer review for monitoring and supervision because we have a legal regime that is terribly weak on that. And of course, that in itself uh, gives excuses for non-compliant states to get away with murder. So, on the first issue, this question of safe third country, early identification, I think that more case law is needed. And case law is hard law. And law will advance in that way, and it is actually advancing. Unfortunately, it's not advancing at the same pace or in the same direction uh, in all parts. But I think that there, there should be a real uh, focused effort to kill some of these wild and weird assumptions about protection in the region and the special responsibility of states, including states that are not party to the 51 Convention, and in my view should simply not be part of the equation, except as candidates to uh, uh, admission in the club of states that are party to the Convention. Anyway, so, yes, there are probably many forms that these legal arguments can take and many forums in which hopefully they will be voiced. So. I don't have all the answers far from that. One thing I'm sure of is that I will know much more at the end of today. <laughs> and not just at the end of today, but also as we continue this dialogue. And again, I would like to thank you and the Caldor Center, not only for inviting me, but for suggesting 
that we have this dialogue and it's a great promise to me and to all of us. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Atem Atem, uh, and I'm here um, representing um, uh, Refugee Communities um, uh, Advocacy Network. Um, I've just got here, literally, <laughs> so I missed part of your presentation. So I don't know what was said before that, but um, my question to you is about uh, sharing responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and you know in our region here, in Australia and Oceania, and probably Southeast Asia, we have a big problem with managing asylum seekers and providing protection. Um, and it looks like, from what I know, uh, that a lot of countries in the region are not signatories to the convention. Um, so looking at something creative as a solution, um, one of the things that has been floated and have the, the Refugee Council, for example, has done some work on it and is still doing work on it, is uh, trying to look at a regional framework um, so that the responsibility is shared. From your point of view, what could that look like in the Oceania region and Southeast Asia? Thank you. Mm. Well, I wish I knew. Um, but anyway, I suppose that provides also an interesting bridge between two annual conferences, right? Uh, because I believe that was the theme of the conference last year. Um, now, what it will look like in this particular region, I don't know. I would, what I would like to say on the approach generally is that indeed I believe that this issue of responsibility sharing is probably best or at least most easily addressed at a regional or situational level than globally. <clears throat> Which is why I must say, when Volker Turk is with us, I will ask him what is the meaning of global in a global compact. Um, now, I said regional or situational, and they're not the same thing. Regional, I suppose, speaks to states that recognize themselves as being part of a region and that have existing mechanisms of cooperation. And of course these exist, <clears throat> not necessarily on refugee issues, uh, but on other related connected issues in Australasia. But I wouldn't know what the limits of that region actually are or should be. I think the better approach, again seen from the needs of the refugees and the, the activation of a refugee-specific mechanism is actually to make it situational, which means we look at a refugee situation, which normally would be defined 
by the country or the countries of origin. Syria is a refugee situation. Somalia is a refugee situation. Afghanistan is still a refugee situation, despite statements to the contrary. Um, so now that helps, of course, focus attention on one particular situation, and, and also it should help adjust solutions, not solutions in necessarily in terms of durable solutions, but just approaches, including through who decides what at what stage, uh, who takes responsibility for which groups, etc., who takes responsibility for this particular dimension of protection, like, for example, refugee children, and who takes responsibility for local integration or integration uh, within existing systems. I think all that is easier, and I'm not suggesting it's easy, it's easier to define if we all know the caseload we're talking about. Hmm? Because with the caseload come the, comes the history, therefore come also the perspectives of solutions in the country of origin, the geopolitical realities, uh, etc. So a situational approach, that's for example what worked with the Comprehensive Plan of Action back in 1989, and that's a long time ago, that was probably a historic moment too. But yes, then we had not a region coming in support of the Vietnamese boat people. We had the world, but not everybody in the world. But at least a number of states in or outside the region could recognize their role and their place within this compact. Okay? Here I can understand the concept of a situational compact, much better than a, uh, a global compact. One additional point I would like to make because it was inherent in your question. In this region, indeed, there are many states that are not party to the 1951 Convention. And I can understand, I have to say, the frustration of Australian governments that see themselves as an island of protection in an ocean of non-standards. Well, I think that comes with ratification. Uh, also, what also comes with ratification is a responsibility, and I know that Australia is taking it seriously, but it's hard to succeed, to make it succeed, to actually make sure that more states in the region become party to the convention, so that at least we can share standards, because otherwise we are simply not speaking the same language. And, you know, as I said, I mean, refugee law is the spine of the regime. Hmm? If there's no agreement on the standards, I don't think that we have even the possibility of an agreement. And finally, I should say, and that would be probably tough for states like Australia to swallow, but again, it, is, it has to be stated as a principle of law. When refugees come to a country like Australia that is a party to the 1951 Convention, they're not only seeking the protection of Australia as a state, they're seeking the protection of the Convention. If only Australia can give that protection because no country around it is a party, so be it. The refugee still has the right to seek the protection of the treaty. Hmm? That is a vision of a treaty which is probably not shared by many. Many would like to see a treaty as only a set of minimum standards 
obligations that you have once you have admitted refugees, I think we need to have a much broader and bolder vision of the treaty, not only as a commonwealth of countries sharing values, but also as a protective umbrella that every refugee in the world has the right to access. Mike. Good morning, and thank you so much for very thought-provoking you know, uh, lecture. Um, firstly, I'm a beneficiary of UNHCR work, so I'd like to thank the UNHCR and you personally. We have been with the UNHCR for a long time. I'm a former refugee from Bhutan, so I'm a beneficiary of that, and thank Australia for the generosity. Now, Having been a refugee myself and uh, having worked with refugee in a refugee camp and now here in resettlement process, um, sorry, my name is Om Dungel, so Om. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, basically, one, there seems to be a disproportionate discourse on the resettlement aspect because UNHCR three sort of stated durable solutions are perhaps the first one is repatriation to the home country. Uh, secondly, you know, if possible, to resettle in the you know host countries, and then the third one is uh, you know third country resettlement. Now, third country resettlement resettles about one percent, I think, of the whole refugee process. But that percentage is immaterial because it resettles about hundred thousand refugees out of the sixty-five thousand people we have displaced. Now, in your view, do you think we have a disproportionate discourse on the resettlement aspect and? Given in Australia, especially, we spend a lot of time on how many people we resettle. We count. We used to settle 13,700 people, and we are increasing that by a few hundred uh, thousands now. And that's minuscule when you look at the bigger problem. So, one, I just wanted, given your you know experience with UNHCR, are we spending too much time on this discourse? And two, perhaps, like, are we? sort of looking at the broader picture, like UNHCR is there to help people who have become refugees. What are we doing to address the problem become, before they become you know, issues like that? For example, Bhutan uh, is a classic example. You raise the issue of you know, whether large refugee influx or small refugee influx. It was 100,000 refugees from Bhutan. Do we call it large or small? It's one-seventh of the population. Perhaps it's one of the Bhutan is one of the highest per capita refugee generator in the world. So perhaps if there are mechanisms we could preemptively look at those aspects, perhaps UNHCR mandate doesn't allow UNHCR to do that, but do you think there is a gap there which would, a mechanism to address issues such as this, which don't become massive humanitarian issues, and what mechanism could perhaps address that? So that was my... Okay sort of broad question, yes. <laughs> it's clear, thank you. Yes, thank you, uh, they're very broad indeed. Um, no, I mean, to take your second question first, um, clearly much more needs to be done to prevent refugee and displacement crisis. And again here, I think that it, it's really important to craft the message well. Displacement is not the problem. The problem is the war, the persecution, the insecurity that creates movement, right? Uh, for many of the people concerned, movement, flight, escape, difficult as it may be, is actually their survival. It is 
a truly protective mechanism in itself. And that needs to be respected and protected, right? So I'm saying this because you hear that a lot, a conflation of this call for the need to prevent wars. We can all agree. If I remember correctly, the UN Charter has banned war forever. Okay, but <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, you know, legal instruments that maybe uh, didn't get it right. Um, so, yeah, but that should not be conflated with blaming the people for the movement itself, right? So, yes, and clearly you know that you said it, it's not for UNHCR to play a role in conflict prevention or in conflict mitigation. I believe there is a role for UNHCR and humanitarian agencies to play a role in post-conflict reconstruction as a way of preventing further explosions. And I would say here, when I say this, I see Afghanistan. Uh, I think that there, indeed, I mean, we know the politics, the international politics of this, but I think there's also a role there for humanitarians to take their responsibility seriously and for states to think very seriously and deeply about their repatriation policies, etc., And probably to be ready for the next influx. So, um, fair enough. Prevention, of course, is needed, but refugee law in that sense is humanitarian law, in the same way as the law of war is. The law of war does not ban war. That is done by the, by the UN Charter. International humanitarian law is actually a very uh, complex and highly developed body of law, which is entirely based on this terrible recognition that war exists and that it will continue to exist. Okay? Refugee law belongs in the same category. Okay? Persecution is there to stay, unfortunately. Now, to your first question on resettlement, well, yeah, I mean, is there an overemphasis on resettlement in some places? Yes. In other, I, I would suggest there is an underemphasis on resettlement. Uh, now, states like Australia have a very proud record of refugee resettlement. So, granted, fantastic, and I think that should continue and that should increase uh, because it has helped uh, large numbers of refugees over the years. And Australia has proven capable of resettling and integrating refugees. In some cases, as I said, it was closer to evacuation than to actual resettlement. But anyway, but the mechanisms are there. They've been well tested. There's a lot of support in the community also for refugees, etc. Fantastic. In that, it is a model. Where I think the discourse starts slip sliding away is when then you put that against the rest. Like, like it, it, if it was a sort of zero-sum game, you know? refugees do come to this country by invitation only. Right? Therefore, the good refugees are the ones we choose, and the others, they probably don't even deserve to be treated as refugees. Now, that, I have to say, is wrong. It is morally wrong. It is legally wrong. Every country is, and uh, Europe is actually discovering this now because Europe has some sort of a reverse trajectory. Very few countries in Europe see themselves as immigration countries. Okay? But nowadays, you have more and more European states that actually accept refugees for resettlement. Does that mean that then they stop accepting the ones who come and knock at their doors? No, it doesn't, and it cannot. So that's, that's my point on this. It cannot be a tit for tat. 
right? Resettlement is a tool of protection among many, right? So it should not be an excuse for not granting protection to those who come spontaneously. Very much. Yes, I think I've exceeded time. Two minutes to spare, and I think we'll just do some housekeeping. But thank you very By much again. It's been a Thank you. Experience.